0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. All right, we're back in Ephesians. We took a little bit of a break from our journey through Ephesians I spoke to someone this morning and it feels like it's a new series, but it's only been about a three week break because we had our carol service and then we had a guest speaker last weekend. And so we're almost there. We've got one more chapter to go and then we'll be closing out our series. Um, we'll only really be wrapping it up uh, towards mid January. And so if you're with us through the season into January, we're only going to be closing up our series um, at the end of, towards the end of Jan. So hang in there with us. So we're in part 15 of our sermon series through Ephesians, and we're in chapter 6. Great. So when we meet someone for the first time, if you ever meet a stranger for the first time, one of the obvious questions you would ask is, what is your name? I've had this... uh, throughout um, my kids' schooling career, both at Gray and Collegiate. And one of those wonderful moments would be standing on the side of the field where you are supporting your child and everyone's supporting their child who is the best in the team, naturally. And and then you get into a conversation with the parents because, you know, you've shouted and you've expressed joy and embarrassment and shame and all the different emotions that go with winning and losing. And then eventually you, you get to meet them. And, uh, and, it, and it starts with, you know, what's your name? And, and it, you know, that's really where we should start. And you kind of find out a little bit about the person and, and uh, who they are. And you kind of, by finding out their name, are respecting their human dignity. But the very next question is, what do you do? And that's where, for me, it gets a little bit strange. Uh, because um, either they find out that I'm now a pastor, and so all the... Uh, harsh words and languages on the side of the field are suddenly all flooding back into their memories and was I standing next to this pastor while this all went down. But anyway, you, know, you can talk to me about that sometimes. But the what do you do question can lead into many directions. But just to say this, that it's, it's almost inbuilt into us. You know, it's, it's what's your name and what do you do? Because both of those are an expression of human dignity. It's almost like it's built into the fabric of the human soul. To find out what is your name and then to ask what you do. What is, what is it that you give your life to? What is it that you do with most of your time? And work is where we spend most of our time. It it, it forms a huge part of our lives. And we intuitively know that work is essential to human dignity. Which is why I think in South Africa we have a serious crisis because of the high unemployment rate which has a direct effect on human dignity. You see, work shouldn't necessarily form our identity that's dangerous too, but work is a gift from God. And we're going to look at a passage this morning that does apply to our work lives, yet initially seems to not apply because it's written to an ancient context, but the application is very relevant. And when we think about work from a biblical perspective, we realize that work is not just another four-letter word, like I would have heard on the side of the sports field, but rather, rather than work being an obstacle to God's best for our lives, actually work is part of God's best for our lives. And we realize this from the whole narrative of Scripture, because Scripture actually begins with Work. Adam was given a task. Adam was given a mandate in the garden to work the garden. You see, because God had worked. God had worked in his creation. And before God rested, he had worked. God had set the example. God is a worker. And being made in his image, Adam was to work. And this work was given as a mandate to be a blessing to Adam and to Eve. And it was before the fall that work was given. And so work is not given after the fall as part of the curse, and now we've got to work. No, it was given before the fall. And so how do we approach work? And so the Reformers had some wonderful perspective on the ideology of work and the theology of work. In fact, In reading uh, reading Martin Luther on the Lord's Prayer, he makes some fascinating statements. In fact, in regards to this line, give us this day our daily bread, Luther says this. He says, this is a a wonderful affirmation of God's good plan for work and for the flourishing of society. And the reason he says this is because of this. He says, what we are praying for in this part of the Lord's Prayer is we are praying for the farmer. The farmer. And we're praying for the laborer to prepare the land. And not only are we praying for the farmer and the laborer to prepare the land, but for them to plant the seed. And then for, for them to water the, and to harvest the grain. Because someone's got to harvest it once it's grown. And not only are we praying for the harvesting of the grain, but then we are praying for the mill. Where the, where the grain is taken to the mill. And then we're praying for another person in the, in the line of business yeah, because the mill has to grind the grain till to, to it's flour, right? And then we're also praying for the person who then takes the flour to the baker. And then we're praying for the baker who's going to bake the bread. And then we're going to pray for the guy who's going to sell the bread. So give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer for work. It's a prayer for God to bless Labor. Incredible, eh? And so now in Ephesians 6, after addressing the Christian family, husbands and wives and children and the order of the family and the the dignity of family and different roles in family and children obeying parents, Paul then instructs slaves and masters. He then speaks to the duty of Christian Employees and Christian employers. So let's read what he says in verse 5. He says, bondservants bond servants or slaves, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, With a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleases, But as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service, work with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, the issue of slavery in the Bible has taken many an interesting turn throughout church history. But I just want to say a couple of things in light of this The first is we don't have time to delve into the nitty-gritties of does the Bible condone slavery or does it condemn slavery? However, there are some wonderful scholarly articles out there that are online for you to read. So I'm not going to get into the finer details, but I want to just make a few comments regarding this particular passage in its initial application. Firstly, I think what we need to realize is that slavery in the ancient world was always mixed. What I mean by mixed is that in some cases, it was voluntary. In some cases, it was actually an uplifting environment. Yet in other cases, it was the brutal, dehumanizing slavery that we read about in the history books. And so it is a mixture of both some good stories and some tragic stories. Church theologian and historian John Stott writes this. He says slavery was universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of any population were slaves. In the Roman Empire alone, there were 60 million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only servants and laborers, but also doctors and teachers. The institution of slavery was a fact of economic life, so much so that no one really spoke of the slave problem in antiquity. All that to say that it wasn't that simple. What I do like about what the Bible does is that it actually does speak to the situation. And how does it speak to it? Well, we could argue that it should be a little bit more explicit in in its condemnation at least. But one thing we cannot say is that it didn't try to reform it. Because there are some wonderful things for us to note in this particular passage that seek to regulate this particular practice? I think what we need to see here is that Christianity in its infancy here was not a dominant power. And there were these huge world powers, the Roman Empire, that that had legislated this form of slavery. And so for Christianity to outlaw it would have been a big ask. And so true to form, true to the form of the gospel, how do we transform culture and society and laws. Well, we don't legislate new laws necessarily. We transform people's hearts. The gospel works best from the inside out. And that's what we find here. Notice in verse 9, the statement of equality would have been breathtaking. He's speaking in verse 9. Look at this. He says, Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This would have been revolutionary, that masters and slaves are equal before God. Equal in worth, equal in dignity, because they have the same Lord. And so the first emphatic statement is, in regards to Christians who are now slaves and Christians who are masters, and how should you live and how should you work together, is know that you are equal. That would have been unheard of, at least in the Roman Empire. The second thing we see here is not only equality, but justice. The slave-master relationship under the gospel was to be now marked by justice. In other words, verse 9, he says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. In other words, what he's saying is not only are you equals, but they have the same rights. They have rights. And so although there's a a strange relationship of master-slave, there is dignity. And they have rights. The third thing we see is that this was a brotherhood. And it's implied here in this relationship between slave master, uh, slave and master. You see, these guys that he's writing to are in the same church. He's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus there is... A mixture of people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And this was the norm. But Paul is writing to regulate it, to change it, to, 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 to bring about hope and life. And so the third and most powerful thing is that in the church and in your relationships between employer and employee, know that you are brothers in Christ. And in Galatians, he would have written this in verse, chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither slave nor free, for you are all one In Christ Jesus. And so the gospel we see is affecting all spheres of society here. All spheres. Both slaves and masters are becoming Christians. And Paul is writing to instruct how they should work together. Now, how do we apply this to our lives today? And thankfully it was Christians under William Wilberforce that actually stood up. And begin to speak out against the atrocities of slavery. It was Christians that heralded a a voice and spoke out against slavery. And you can read about that history. It's a wonderful history. In fact, I'd really encourage you to watch the documentary on William Wilberforce, who did a wonderful job. But here's three ways, and there's three things that we see in this particular test that affect how we should work and how we should view work. Number one... Your work is for God. So whether you're a slave or master, whatever your position is in your company, whether you're at the top of the pile or at the bottom of the pile, there is a job to be done, and your job is to be done firstly and foremostly for God. Notice in these four verses, verse 5, he says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Here it is, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ. Christ. Verse 7, rendering service as to the Lord. Verse 8, this he will receive back from the Lord. In other words, in four verses where he addresses the position that you have in your employment, he links it to your relationship with Christ. In other words, your work is meaningful in and of itself, but even more so because you're working for God. And so your perspective changes. Whether your tasks are mundane or whether your tasks are making millions, things have been broadened now because Christ is brought into perspective. And so I'm not just doing a job. I am working in partnership with Christ. My work is for God. Look at verse 7 again. He says, Rendering service, in other words, do your work, do your work, render service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man. And so, yes, there is a horizontal reality to your work life, and I've got a job to do, and I've got tasks to do, and I've got people to report to, but ultimately, I'm doing this for God. This is how Christians work. Now, non-Christians don't work like this. We know that. This is why he's ordering Christian families, and he's ordering the Christian home, and now he's ordering the Christian work life according to the gospel, according to what Christ has done. He's saying you work for God. You don't just work for the bottom line. You don't just work for your earthly boss. Notice he speaks about obey your earthly masters. And the reason you can obey your earthly masters is because you have a heavenly master. That's the only reason you can do that. But then we find ourselves often frustrated in our jobs, don't we? You know, we don't all have the the perfect dream job. And you may be thinking, well, maybe I settled too soon on that particular job. And maybe I missed out on that one dream job. And we start to think of a better situation and better circumstances and a more empowering job with a better pay line and whatever it might be. And we begin to hear the chorus of the culture. And do you know what the chorus of the culture is? The chorus of the culture is this. Find a job where you do what you love. Oh, that sounds so good, doesn't it? Or the chorus of the culture is don't settle for any job that you're not passionate about. Wow. Or it could be if you do what you love, You won't have to work a day in your life. Well, you know what? If you do what you love, you won't be able to pay the rent. You won't be able to put food on the table. Your family will be starving. Your wife will leave you. These slogans are sold by the millions. But listen, let's be honest, guys. Let's be honest because the reality of our work sets in over time. And what we begin to realize is that that dream job, simply does not exist for many people. It doesn't even exist. And if it did, it wouldn't pay you to do it. Because I'm thinking of hanging out in the Maldives on a, on a yacht. And so firstly, I'm not going to make much money because I'm going to be scrubbing the bottom of the yacht. And, and, and then secondly, I'm probably not qualified even to be on the yacht. So the dream job is probably an unrealistic vision. The second thing is there's an awful lot of work that has to be done that no one dreams about, right? There are jobs that need to be done that I'm guessing none of us are dreaming about. Which means that there are an awful lot of jobs available that are not the dream job, right? And someone's got to do them. Thirdly, the harsh reality is that There's no way we can work for God or bring glory to God in the job that we're dreaming of because it's a dream, right? The only way we can bring glory to God is in the job that we have. So maybe we need to just work with the job we got and begin to think that through a little more. Now, I'm not saying don't aspire, don't have ambition, do that. But don't fool yourself. Bring glory to God in the job that you've been given. Yes, work hard. But maybe that ideology of this dream job doesn't actually exist. So work for God. Find your joy in Him. Not in your work. Because it will never deliver. But secondly, what we see here is that your work is a witness. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. It says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service. So not only when they're watching you, right? Don't just work well when the boss is there. Not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but doing the will of God from the heart. And this is what distinguishes Christian work. Christians who work don't just do work well, we do it with the right attitude. And this links back to point number one. Because if I'm working for Christ and I know that I need to bring glory to God in my job, then I can do it with my heart. Because I'm not just doing it for the boss. I'm doing it for my master in heaven. He's the one who I'm ultimately responsible to. And so we can work from the heart. The standard here is not just excellent work, which is what it should be. There are too many bad stories of Christians in business who do terrible business. So if you want to find a tiler to do your tiling in your bathroom, I hear the story. Don't, Don't ask within the church. That's a sad story. Christians should work with excellence, but also Paul is saying it should be with a sincere heart. Because the reality is there are lots of excellent workers out there. There are lots of excellent people who do an excellent job, but they don't do it for God. And so it has to be both. We need to work hard, and when we work hard and we do well and we do it with the right attitude... It's a witness. It's a powerful witness. It's a wonderful witness. Two, two stories quickly. The one is um, Alexander the Great. The great Alexander the Great is a story that says he was walking amongst his troops, his soldiers, on one, one uh, evening. And, uh, and everyone was well-dressed and had, had kind of come back from battle and cleaned up. And, uh, and they were just proud of their victories and and, and you could see it all over their, their, their posture and their manner. And yet there was this one scoundrel that he walked past and this guy was lying there and his helmet was off and his armor was falling to pieces and he was drunk and blurring slander and and just a disgrace and he he called the soldier and he said get to your feet and he got to his feet and and he was trying to sober himself in front of alexander the great and he said soldier what's your name and he mumbled my name's alexander sir and he replied either you change your attitude or you change your name You see, because we represent with our lives. Our lives speak. Our actions speak. And how we work and our attitude at work is a witness. One more. Martin Luther said this. I love this quote. You've heard me say it before. The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes. Listen, we don't need to put the Christian stamp on it. You don't need to be a Christian lawyer. You don't need to be a Christian teacher. Just teach well. Just do your job with excellence and with integrity. You don't need to put little crosses on it. The witness will be there when you work hard and you work well with a sincere heart. Number three and lastly, your work is for the common good. Look at this, Ephesians 6 verse 5 and 8. Bond servants, obey your masters knowing that whatever good, whatever, incredible, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. There are two things being said here. One is that all good work is valuable. So so whatever you're doing, if you're a mom at home, or if you're if you're an admin, or if you're just helping, or if you're just sweeping, or if you're crunching numbers as a CA, whatever it might be, all good work is valuable. That's incredible. In other words, your work matters. It matters to God, and He sees it. Look what it says: Whatever good anyone does, this He will receive back from not his boss, but from the Lord. The Lord is watching. The Lord sees. The Lord is with you. Notice he says then, whether he is bondservant or he's free. So whether you're, at the, whether you're at the bottom of the hierarchy or if you're at the top of the right hierarchy, he sees it and your work is valuable. Work, Just work on its own. If it's good, is for the benefit of all. We are stewarding this world, people. We are called to steward it. So even littering is a bad thing. We, sh, we should be helping the world. And we shouldn't be polluting our oceans and our seas and our rivers. We should be setting the example. We are stewards of God's world. And our good work. So it's not just Christian work that's of benefit. It's good work that's of benefit to culture. It's a common good. Jeremiah 29 verse 7, God's people were given this command even in exile. God says to them, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So not only is all good work valuable, but also notice this, that nothing good is done in vain. Why? Because The Lord will repay. The Lord will see it. Look what he says. This he will receive back from the Lord. So even if your boss thinks you're a nobody, even if your your boss might not even know you exist, that doesn't matter because the Lord knows you exist. And the Lord sees your work. And in the end, he will reward your faithful service. Your service, your work is not in vain. It's for the common good. It's for witness. And ultimately, it's for God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the scriptures that speak Not only to an ancient culture of biblical times, but also to our very own lives today. We thank you for these instructions. We thank you for your word to us this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would shape us and challenge us and conform us to this this vision of how work should be done. How employer and employee should interact, at least Christian employer and employee. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to put these things into practice. Lord, help us to set the example. Help us to work well. Help us to work hard. And help us to work with the right attitude. Lord, we want to confess it's not easy. It's hard out there. And many of our job circumstances... Are in, in, in so many ways just all about profit and bottom line and walking over people. And so we need your help, Lord. Some of us, the workload is just far too much because companies are cutting staff in order to make more profit and serve themselves. And so, Lord, we, we really want to cry out to you this morning for your help. Help us, Lord. We want to to do this right. We want to work for you. And we do want to work hard, but we don't want to be crushed. We also don't want it to be our identity. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to find the balance and to find the, the rhythm of how we are to work bringing you glory. Give us wisdom and give us strength.